Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is July 29th, 2016. This is episode 1838 of the Survival Podcast, and we are going to have a great show today. This expert Council Q&A day, and I'm going to give you uh, a bunch of great stuff. I'm going to give you some humor at the beginning. I'm going to close up with a serious subject, and I'm going to give you a great song to feel great about everything, including the the the, 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 the final ending of the two major Ass Clown Circus events, the RNC and DNC conventions. It, it is a little special thing. My favorite singer and songwriter did just today that really sums it up and will put you in a great mood going into the weekend. And if I sound like I'm in a great mood today, I am for a variety of reasons. What is Friday since the end of the week? Um, so it's always nice to rap. Even when you love what you do, it's nice to have a couple days off. Another reason is this strange substance has fallen from the sky uh, four days out of five days this week, and it's currently falling. I, I ran a video of it, and I did a search to find out what it is. It's called rain. Uh, it's been a while, and uh, everything was brown, and I'm watching rain fall yet again. It was so long, I almost forgot what it was. So that, that'll put you in a good mood when you're in the farming business as well. So uh, it's going to be a great show and a lot of great topics. What are we going to talk about today? I'm going to start off with uh, what happens when you're offended by something. I have a little comedic thing to play for you to put you in a great mood today. I want you guys in a great mood today. And uh, a little bit of my thoughts on that as well, but mostly just uh, a really cool little bit of comedian uh, stuff to start the day off. Some of you have no doubt heard this on Facebook, but I think it'll make you laugh, even if you've heard it multiple times. Anyway, then we're going to talk about choosing ammo for your AR, especially if you're a new AR owner and you're not really sure what this uh, 5.56 stuff really is. It's a super stuff for killing buffaloes at a million yards. No, it's not, but what do you choose? Well, Brian Black will weigh in on that. Uh, Michael Jordan will try to help out someone with a problem he's actually not seen before. Uh, ants making bees go like pathological psychopath. Like there's ants and then the guy brushes the ants off and the bees are like, now you must die and attack like that. Okay. Um, what's up with that? Uh, on a more serious note, Doc Bones talks about dealing with rheumatoid arthritis, a new diagnosis of that issue. Uh, developing your own grain feeds by Darby Simpson today for, for a, a fellow in Australia with a unique opportunity. And uh, a kind of a tag team, Darby hands it off at the end to Nick Ferguson to talk a little bit about fermented feeds. So Nick will talk about fermenting your, your feed for your livestock. And then, I have crabs from a listener. Help, I have crabs. Not, not those kind. In fact, I have too many crabs, right? That tells you right there it can't possibly be the... The bad kind, because one's too many of those, right? No, I have too many Dungeness crabs. Oh, good problem to have. Chef Keith will talk to us about crabs, ways that you can store the meat without ruining it, and things you can do other than just steaming crabs and making crab cakes. Though I think, I think honestly, honestly, if you fed me crab meat with drawn butter every day for dinner for the rest of my life, I would be okay with that. I don't think I would get tired of it at all. I really don't. Uh, or to paraphrase Jimmy Buffett, who will be 
you know, doing the ending song today for you. Maybe I'll have to play this song for you, but there's a line in one of his songs that says, Give me oysters and beer for dinner every day of the year, and I'll be fine. Right? Uh, that's, that's kind of how I feel when it comes to most seafood. Anyway, that's what we're going to talk about. And I'm going to answer a question at the end of the day. Like, if the government school system is going to implode, and it is over the next 5, 10, 15 years, it's totally the writings on the wall, then what happens to real estate values in all these places where people are living there primarily because of the good schools? Does that hurt the real estate values? I'm going to give an answer that might not be what you expect it to be. Anyway. Before we get into all that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot Slingshot and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives, along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1838, and that means we're going to look at the year 1830 because the episode is 1838. I have three from Alex Shrugged today. I have A Trail of Teal Tears. I have The Missouri-Mormon War. And I have The Pastry War. And in other news, Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom is crowned, thus begins... The Victorian age, although some historians date its beginning to 1832 when reforms were enacted to reduce election abuses. But when you hear the Victorian era, it has now officially begun in 1838. The father of the National Weather Service is born. Cleveland App will use telegraph and collect weather reports to make reasonably accurate predictions using probability and statistics. Yes, yes, that's why I think weather prediction is not really that hard. You can usually look on a radar and see what's there and what direction it's moving and know what's coming. This was the predecessor of that. And John Wilkes Booth is born in Maryland on this year, 1838, and will later assassinate President Abraham Lincoln in Ford Theater five days after Robert E. Lee surrenders the Confederacy. So we're going to read, and I, I wanted... You know, I thought about this, and I know there's a lot of people that are LDS, Latter-day Saints members in this audience, to, to read the Missouri-Mormon War. But in a previous um, episode, I actually covered quite a bit of what is going to happen because we were looking forward toward it happening. And we haven't really talked much about the way things have worked out for the natives yet in the history segment. So... I'm going to read The Trail of Tears. I do want to mention again that the Missouri-Mormon War was the only time that an extermination order was you know, given uh, against a group of people based on anything in this country. Now, some might say that we were given orders to wipe out many groups and parts of the Native American population, but this was... This is one of the darkest things that's ever happened, and I, I would encourage you, if you don't usually read the other subjects, to get over to TSP Wiki, the year 1838. There's a link in the show notes, and read the Missouri-Mormon War, and learn a little bit more about it, because we can learn about a lot about division, but 
I just because we covered this, I want to cover A Trail of Tears because it's very well known in a term, but I don't think many people really know the real story. By solemn treaty, the Cherokee Nation has been granted rights to a large region in Georgia forever. That is until gold is found. Then somehow forever is redefined to mean get the heck off this land and move to Oklahoma. Oklahoma is designated as Indian Territory. A few Cherokee Indians escaped to the Smoky Mountains, and others who had bought private plots of land are allowed to stay. 2,000 Indians volunteer to move to Oklahoma and are transported by water, but as many as 16,000 are force-marched out of Georgia. They will lose approximately 4,000 to disease and exposure, mostly in Illinois. The Cherokee call it the Trail of Tears. Many tribes have followed similar trails and shed their own tears. Due to the Indian Removal Act of 1830, a couple of Supreme Court decisions of what can only be described as outright cheating, the Indian tribes have been pushed off to Oklahoma. The final true land set aside for the Indians in perpetuity, that is, until oil is discovered there. My take by Alex Shrug. Okay, I've painted a bad picture of the U.S. government, and in many ways it deserves it. I'd like to stop there, but in fairness, it looks like a dispute between the state's rights and federal rights. Georgia wanted the Indians out, and the feds didn't want didn't want to enforce their rights, which might have sparked a civil war. We got one anyway, but that's hindsight talking. On a whole, and generally speaking, the Indians got the worst of it when, it, when comforting, confronting settlers migrating west, and most U.S. officials, uh, most of the U.S. official abuse looks like I don't give a crap anymore attitude. This was due in part to viewing the Indians as savages or because the government did not understand leaderless organizations. Frankly, they do not understand them today. The Indians had chiefs, but making a deal with the chief wouldn't always stick with the young bucks wouldn't go along. I can hear the objection now, but Alex, what about defending property rights? Historically speaking, the Indians used two strategies for survival against settler encroachment. The most successful was using the scolding houses, as they called the courts, many, many maintaining one's property rights as a scolding house strategy. But buying, plot, buying plots of land and defending their right to property work better than claiming natural right to land in perpetuity. Nations can be conquered, and then the nation belongs to the conqueror. It's not pretty, but it happens a lot. However, in those days, even property rights wouldn't have protected Indians completely. Laws only work when they are for everyone, and in case no one has noticed, laws seem to be enforced selectively even today. I'm looking at you, Hillary. Yes, indeed. I can't help but think that. Um, my point here is... It wasn't Native Americans that decided they wanted to control everything and pushed out even other Native Americans. There might have been some conflicts over territories and stuff like that. But the leaderless society of Native Americans is effectively an anarchy. It really was. That's why no one was bound to follow the decision of one leader. That's not how it works. And yet they seem to get along pretty well until we decided to civilize them. And all of this was done through government, through the state. And the federal government not intervening is really irrelevant to the issue. It was still a government, the government of the state of Georgia. And remember, this is prior to the war between the states. The thing they tell you is a civil war. It wasn't a civil war, I'm just saying. Um, so states had a lot more authority and power within their own borders at this time. But it's an evil, horrible thing that was done to people who had been promised something that we had made a deal with. And just every time your government promises you something, just remember how many times they've promised it to somebody else and broken their word. And the way I feel about this, and I know some people think I'm extreme in my view of this, 
It's not a matter of if the government will break its word. It's only a matter of how it will break its word and how long it will be before they do it. That's how you have to view everything that government ever promises you. They will go back on their word. You have to worry about the how and the when so that you can be preemptive. In this case, the natives that did buy land were told, okay, that is, you, you do own that land. You do own that land. And were recognized, even though they were still considered subclass citizens, a deed mattered because it was in the system. And as much as I want to be outside of the system, on the interactive edges, we need to use the system against itself, like any good martial artist would. Now, when I said Indian, did that offend anybody? You're supposed to be Native American. And we, we've got this world of collectivist thinking crap going on today, where everybody is offended by everything. You've said something I don't like. You didn't give me the answer that I wanted. I need to run away to my, my safe space. Have you ever wondered, wondered, ladies and gentlemen, have you ever wondered, dear listeners, what actually happens when you're offended? Well, the answer is nothing. Nothing happens when you're offended. No one really gives a shit. But we can get some humor from it. So I'd like to introduce for you a special guest for his first and possibly only appearance on the Survival Podcast, Mr. Steve Hughes, to tell us about being offended. Uh, note, this is a comedian. He will use adult words. If that offends you, you might want to skip a few minutes ahead in the broadcast now, I'm just saying, because, well, if you're offended by this, it will tell you why no one cares. Okay, But I wanted you guys to have some humor. This is not safe for work, though, okay? Most work environments, anyway. Just so you know, don't want anything to surprise you. What happens when you're offended? And then we have political correctness, which is, which is the joy that is the other side of health and safety, which is health and safety, which is a small oppression of our physical movement, so we can't do anything without permission from the state. And political correctness is the oppression of our intellectual movement, so no one says anything anymore in case somebody else gets offended. <laughs> What happens if you say that and someone gets offended? <laughs> well, they can be offended. <laughs> What's wrong with being offended? When did sticks and stones made break my bones stop being relevant? <laughs> Isn't that what you teach children, for God's sake? That's what you teach toddlers. He called me an idiot. Don't worry about him. He's a dick. Now you have adults going, I was offended, I was offended, and I have rights. <laughs> well, so what? Be offended. Nothing happens. <laughs> You're an adult. Grow up. Deal with it. I was offended. I don't care. <laughs> nothing happens when you're offended. There's nothing. I, I went to the comedy show, and, and the comedian said something about the Lord, and, and I was offended. And when I woke up in the morning, I had leprosy. I want to live in a democracy, but I never want to be offended again. <laughs> well, you're an idiot. <laughs> How do you make a law about offending people? How do you make it an offense to offend people? Being offended is subjective. That has everything to do with you as an individual, or a collective, or a group, or a society, or a community, your moral conditioning, your religious beliefs. What offends me may not offend you. And you want to make laws about this? I'm offended when I see boy bands, for God's sake. <laughs> It's a valid offense. I'm offended. 
they're corporate shills posing as musicians to further a modelling career, and frankly, I'm disgusted. <laughs> but what am I going to do? Call the cops? Hello, it's me again. <laughs> they're on the telly this time. Five of them, that's it. Yeah, white suits, dancing like girls, that's them. Five minutes, I'll be out the front traumatized. Bye. Indeed, we live in a world today where not only is everybody offended by every damn thing, but people are going out of their way to be offended. People are, are going and reading things that they know will offend them and then complaining that they were offended. Uh, I see this all the time in Facebook with people on and on about how offensive something that somebody else said was. Well, stop freaking reading it. Mute the discussion. Go somewhere else. What have you. But see, that's, the, that's the, the real reality here and kind of what I wanted to point out. The problem isn't that people are offended or even bitch about it. The problem is now to the point where people want to be offended and they want to use the power of offense to influence others to their own ends. So I'll give you an example from the Ass Clown Circus. One of the big memes going around right now in advertisements from Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, and remember, I don't want either one of these people running my country. I really don't. Um, but one of them is going to, and this is just an example of what I'm saying, This some kind of offended, uh, but bending the offense to make it seem more offensive. So nothing could be more offensive than Donald Trump. He just exists, and I'm offended. Okay, whatever. I'm offended by lying, so whatever. Uh, but anyway... Um, There's this ad going on right now where they show Trump saying all these outlandish things, and I'm not going to go through it piece by piece. I'm going to talk about one. And then it says at the end, our children are watching. And then it says, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message, right? Well, one is, I could shoot somebody on, on Fifth Avenue, and I wouldn't lose any votes. All right? Well, that's offensive. He's threatening to shoot people, and he's saying that people are so stupid they'll still vote for him. What he said was, what he said was, they're saying that they don't understand it. What they're saying is, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not miss any votes. Okay, and what you do is you pull out just the piece that's completely ridiculous out of context. And then you play that to offend people so that you can get them to, to think your way. And it's being done not just in politics, it's being done everywhere. And here's the solution. Get over being offended and grow the F up. Seriously, our country has become a bunch of freaking, and I'll say it, pussies. It's not just our young people. We have 70-year-old pussies walking around out there that are offended and upset and crying and their noses are bent over bullshit. You don't like what somebody else said? Don't listen to them. You know what? If you're going to be upset because of what other people think, say, and do, even when it doesn't actually affect you because you choose to allow it to affect you, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be a miserable person. And this is the big takeaway. Unless it's commensurate with someone else's agenda where they can use you like a tool to get what they want, no one gives a shit. And no one's ever, ever, ever really going to care that you were offended. Unless they happen to be offended by the same thing, and again, then you are simply more ammunition to get what they want because they didn't want to be offended. Here's my view. I'm offended by all of you being offended. That's how I feel. That's what I want to tell the whole country. You being offended over everything is offensive to me and my sensibilities with being a freaking grown-up. And I just wonder, 
Because remember that Hillary commercial? Our children are watching. What are we teaching our children when, when somebody says something we don't like or disagree with, they are to be ostracized and silenced instead of answered with logic and fact? We're teaching them to grow up and be the next generation of freaking pussies. And I've had enough of it. And that's why I brought you humor on it today, though. Because humor is a way to see how completely ridiculous and preposterous it is. Hopefully that brought some humor to you. And let's get into it with a question for Brian Black on 556 Ammo for the AR. Hey, TSP. Brian Black from ITS here with another Expert Council question. This one is from Grant, who asks, I'm new to the AR-15 platform and I'm simply looking for advice on ammo selection for a new Colt LE-6920, such as manufacturer and bullet weight. I would be glad to help you out with that, Grant. So there's a couple of different good ammo sources that I can recommend. Um, actually, I can get into sources in a second. But first, the types of ammo that I would recommend are some commercially available um, military ammo that's you know been designated for the commercial market. So typically you can find that either labeled as M855 or SS109, as it's also commonly referred to, and also another one called M193. Those are both great uh, ammunition uh, types. Uh, the M855, also known as SS109, is a 62-grain bullet, and the M193 is a 55-grain bullet. So commonly you may find this with the X designation, so XM855 or XM193, and there's nothing particularly wrong with this ammo. It's just something that had been a government contract overrun at the ammo plant. So uh, a popular ammo plant that I would definitely suggest you look for is ammo manufactured by Lake City. That's a, that's a pretty common uh, place to get uh, that manufactures the brass and the ammunition. So Lake City brass is commonly preferred if you're reloading and things like that. It's a better annealed brass. Um, in most cases, it's annealed. Um, but anyway, the XM designation may not meet, um, but again, it does meet the requirements for commercial ammo when it comes to things like pressure and form, fit and function. So hopefully that helps you. Um, again, I would highly recommend you look for Lake City stuff. You, you won't go wrong with that. Um, and I'd also like to just address one more thing, which is kind of a myth that keeps popping up with the XM855 or M855. Um, it's also known as green tip, so it's got a little tiny green tip painted on, on the end of the bullet. Um, again, that's also referred to as SS-109. But the common myth is that it's armor-piercing, and while it may appear that way because it has a steel core, it's not classified as the ATF as armor-piercing. And I have an article, a whole article I wrote on the subject, and I'll make sure Jack gets the link um, to post for those of you that are interested in reading more on that. But that's what I suggest. And there's a couple of great sources for ammunition out there, too, just to kind of talk about those. Uh, Lucky Gunner is a good one. Um, ammunition to go. And there's another there's another ammo company out there I, I'm drawing a blank on. But there's also some good resources that will check a lot of them for you. And I can't remember what the names of those are offhand, too. I apologize. But there's kind of some ammunition checkers, basically, that will look at multiple websites and kind of give you the best price for those, too. So hopefully that helps you, and thanks for the question, Grant. And thank you, TSB, for the questions. Keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for a daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats, www.itstactical.com. Thanks again. So great advice from Brian. I will put it, point out, um, he mentioned Lucky Gunner, and Lucky Gunner is actually a sponsor of his. 
And I'll mention Bulk Ammo, that they're a sponsor of mine. They're actually owned by the same company and uh, have equivalent pricing. Uh, it's really a marketing strategy for online marketing, having multiple websites. So they are both great places to get your ammo from. And I'll also say this. If there is a round to become a handloader because of, and especially stepping into something like progressive presses that allow you to load high volume more quickly, 223 would be the place. Um, 223 ammo used to be so stupid cheap in surplus that, or 556, I should actually say, it's so stupid cheap in surplus that there was like no reason not to do it. And there actually is a difference between 223 and 556, and I won't get into it today. Um, but it has to do with the dimensions of the casing itself and the pressures, uh, externally and the round itself, the bullet, the, the projectile are the same. Uh, but you can worry about that if you're going to step into reloading, and you can worry about that if you're buying an AR, depending on how it's marked, what you want to run in it or not. You can look that up for yourself. I don't have time to get into it. But the volume you shoot when you get into AR shooting is significant, and it is a round that is very inexpensive to reload. Again, if there's a round that would make you do it for economics, Right, not for other things like total control, accuracy, etc., but for economics alone, it would probably be the 223. Whereas I'd say 10 years ago that wasn't the case. So just something to think about there. Next up, we have a question for bees becoming pathological, crazy, nut job killer bees almost because of ants. Michael Jordan, take it away. Hey, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee friendly company here, taking your questions on bees apiary management, and mead making. Hey, this question comes from Bob Leitner. Bob tells us that he's cracking open his beehives. He found a bunch of ants with eggs and larvae near the feeder in his hive. Well, he brushed them off, and when he did so, the bees went psycho. The bees attacked him with vengeance. Bob asks if this could be ant pheromones near their nest that was disturbed and has set the bees off. He says his girls are normally really docile. Man, Bob, this is this is one of those questions that is super cool. Uh, I've never had this problem, and I know that ants have walked, if they walk all over the feeders and leave pheromone trails to make it so the bees will not feed from them until the pheromones are removed. So I, I know for a fact that when the bees march, they'll march and make that trail, cutting off the food supply to the bees, and you have to wash that off. Uh, bees are afraid of ants. To a larger extent, uh, they come in groves and kill bees and can use the bees as food for their colonies. Ants are omnivorous. Uh, they will eat sugar solutions, the honey from the hive, the larvae, and other insects that are incorporated near the hive. Uh, they're mass destroyers of vegetation and dead carcasses. Um... If you're not looking at your bee yard or apiary all the time, you can have ants in and around your hives. If you're not uh, out there trapping ants, putting grease on the legs or spraying Pam on the posts or putting in some buckets or something, you're going to have them. Uh, from my entomology days at college, I remember ants produce numerous different pheromones, each with its own distinct pur purpose. Uh, biologist E.O. Wilson uh, that that does stuff. Uh, he describes that basically each pheromone varies tremendously on what the signal entails. Uh, that ants uh, will taste and smell the substance, 
that evaporates off the chemical laid down by another ant. So, for example, like alarm pheromones discharge into the air, it expands in like a circle smell, and ants can determine the concentration of the pheromone, this determining the proximity of, this, of the source of the danger. Uh, bees do the same thing when they sting by leaving a marker beacon, where the bees should sting again. So I'm sure when you move the eggs, the panic pheromone was let loose. Uh, like most living things that are observant, I'm sure that the panic from the ants spread to the bees, making them aggressive. I know that any smell that is picked up by the honeybees, the bees will react to. If it's uh, incense from your smoker to uh, sweat, your breath. Uh, that's why sometimes I hold my breath when I'm working with my bees, so I'm not blowing right in there. Because all, all those things uh, will react with the bees. I do not work with ants. Uh, that's the best scenario that I can give you is that basically that when the disturbance with the larva happened, the, the ants panicked. Uh, they were leaving out a pheromone. I'm sure it was pretty strong because you're destroying their babies. And it just caused the ants probably just to go into a, a mass panic, making the bees go into a mass panic. And due to the fact maybe they're working asymbiotically. I know that some ants will eat the mites in the beehives. That's a, a more in, introduction to asymbiotic relationships between uh, different insects and how they work. It's uh, Those are some more deeper compounds and complex things of introduction, like uh, introducing some ants in the bottom of the hive to control certain pests. Those are in the earth bottom hives. Uh, Phil Chandler does some of that. Um, it's just a bigger difference. But, you know, thank you, Bob, for the interesting question. And it's not only on bees this time, but it's what it, the ant world was. Hey, I am the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company, asking you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy from a cottage industry because we all had to start someplace. And be that bigger person and help your fellow man. For one day you need that, might need that help, too. Hopefully, Bob, that I was able to answer this question as best as I could. Like I said, I don't study ants, and I'm not huge into entomology, but I wanted to help you out with the knowledge that I have. Feel free to uh, look into some more complex things. Look at the E.O. Wilson statements in uh, Botany and Biology, and talks about pheromones and transitions from ants. But other than that, I, hopefully I helped you out, man, just trying to do my best, too. Yeah, I, I think what happened is on the disturbance of the ants, they did their pheromone thing. The bees picked that up. It was a massive amount, and they went into attack mode, you know, and it's something you just have to try to avoid. Uh, what we're doing here with our, our bee frame stands to deal with the massive amounts of ants that we have in uh, the, the, this part of the country and all the way over to the southeast of the fire ants is either metal buckets or number 10 metal cans, and the legs of the stand sit straight in there, and then you fill those about three-quarters of the way with uh, motor oil. And you don't want to use a vegetable oil because it will break down over time and they'll, they'll end up eating it. It's not 100%, but it's the most effective method that we've found. Um, next up, I have a question for um, Jeff Lawton on dealing with uh, land that occasionally floods, a small piece of land you want to make use of every bit of it you have. Jeff, let's talk about dealing with land that exists in a floodplain. Next question here is from Mike. And Mike's in a flood zone in North Virginia. And um, 
he has a uh, uh, an interesting block of land. It's only a small acreage, a uh, quarter of an acre, and um, a thousand square meters. And um, there's a, a good bit of land at the back of uh, his uh, block, and it floods. And um, he says that uh, 361 days of the year it's fine, and four days of the year it floods. And uh, what can he do with it? Um, well, I'd say you look, you're sitting in a, in a great position there. Um, and I would advise you uh, read um, what the pattern lecture uh, in Bill Mollison's book, Chapter 4, in the Permaculture Designer's Manual. There's a lovely section at the back about how you use harmonic flood uh, traps to harvest um, firewood, mulch, and silt. And what you can do is you can plant up a harmonic hook, hooking away from the flow. So in other words, the flow is coming down the shank of the hook and getting trapped in the shallow end of the flood by the curve. And that will drift firewood to the end of the hook and mulches will settle out on the upstream side and silts and sands, and some of those are very valuable, on the leeward side of the hook. Now, if you're in the subtropics to tropics, I'd advise clumping bamboos, but you're not. You're in uh, North Virginia. So I would advise uh, a tree that grows from cuttings easily, and willow would be the great one. And now you could go for a productive willow as well, because you can plant them by stakes, and you can close set them and offset them so that when they grow, they really do trap the flood. Um, and, and they become like a sieve. Now you can cut the top of a willow and it'll always regrow. So, and it will coppice every year and grow a lot of sticks. And some of them are very, very useful. Um, my advice to you is try and get the artist pencil willow and get a, um, a, uh, another harvest by cutting the willows when they're pe- pencil thick, uh, and uh, charcoal in them and selling them for a, a dollar or two, uh, for a six inch piece of charcoal willow. You'll make yourself a few thousand dollars for nothing each year with a little bit of charcoal in. There are quite a few basketry willows and all kinds of useful willows. It's the genus Salix. So there's a hundred or so in the Salix genus and they're all good forage. They're all pleached together and there are many of great values. I think the highest value one is probably the artist pencil willow when you process it into charcoal and then sell it to your artist art shops as a artist pencil. But there are others. There's loads of others. But they're great because you put them in as big stakes. When they start growing and get established, you can cut the tops off and they'll keep coppicing. They make that lovely filter. It's been done for traditionally for years, thousands of years probably. You can also pleach them together and make an even better filter. Now, um, now, now what you're doing is you're, you're, you're building yourself, as Jack once said to me, oh, gee, Jeff, you're building yourself a delta. Well, you kind of are, yeah, and it's a funky thing to do. Um, my, I've got a, a few on my property in the flood zone out of bamboo, and they're really starting to work now. They're trapping up beautifully, and we're getting a lot of free yield. So you're getting the mulch of the catchment, which is really diverse. You're getting the sands and silks of the catchment, which is also minerally diverse. That's a great mix. And uh, you're building yourself up a bit, these uh, flood banks. And then after the flood's gone, um, chop all your grasses down to that point in time, use them for mulch, cultivate the surface a bit and put an opportunistic crop in. You won't have to water it. You'll get yourself corn, beans and squash like crazy going if it's, uh, if it's the right time of year for the, um, for the germination point. But whatever it is, take that opportunistic uh, um, situation. This, this is strategic design. So 
um, when, when you go into techniques, it's just how you do something and, and strategies are how and when you do it. It's got a time element. And to add the harmonics is patterning. So you're really getting into a permaculture strategic patterning event around this flood phenomena and the problem's the solution. And off you go. Have loads of fun. Enjoy the journey. I, I, I like to hear how you go. It's always great mucking about with that stuff. You can't do much wrong if you get the harmonics right. Um, Oh, by the way, if you go the other way, if you curve away from the flood and you do that on both sides of a bank, what you do is you scour a hole in the base of the creek, which gives you um, a hole that doesn't dry out in, in, in drought and, um, and um, most of the time gives you a better fishing spot. So Jack and I have talked a lot about going fishing. I'd like to get into your big catfish down there in Texas sometime, but like, um, love the fishing so anything if you go the other way and well in your case there Mike you don't own the creek but in it, for those f- people listening who want to own uh, want to get better fishing you can carve out deeper holes and all fishermen know it's the drop off on the edge of the hole where the fish hang out for a free feed so you can create holes for fishing one way and mulch for food the other way so you've got the fish fry one end and the, and the veggies to, to, to eat with it the other way it's all waiting for us just to be better better evolved humans with design really there you go good stuff from uh, Jeff and willow would be a great crop in there for a variety of reasons one for the reason he mentioned with uh, artist charcoal being a product the other thing being that it would be a constant source of uh, new biomass for mulch and things like that I do want to point out there are bamboos you can grow in that climate though if, if you wanted to grow bamboo and another option would be river cane uh, they're North American cane uh, plants that are, are similar to bamboo but are different and are indigenous to our climate Uh, next up, I have a question for Doc Bones on dealing with a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Old Bones, man, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones, author of the brand spanking new third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. 699 pages of information that will help you succeed, even if everything else fails. You can get it at Amazon.com. Oh, also, I am the founder of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800 posts, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week's question for the Survival Podcast Expert Council is from Kevin, who writes, My wife was recently diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and has been placed on methotrexate. She is 43. Are there natural ways to treat the symptoms or a lifestyle change that we can make to benefit her condition? Kevin, rheumatoid arthritis is the most common autoimmune disease in the world today. It's a disorder in which the body's immune system attacks its own tissues. The attack is not only directed to the joint, but also to other parts of the body. Women, indeed, are more susceptible than men. Rheumatoid arthritis especially affects joints in the fingers and wrists, but it's also common in the knees and the elbows. Over time, it can lead to severe deformities if not treated. Rheumatoid arthritis occurs in younger populations than osteoarthritis or degenerative arthritis, even striking children on occasion. Other symptoms that are associated with rheumatoid arthritis include dry mouth, dryness, itching, or burning in the eyes, insomnia, strange sensations in the hands and feet, nodules under the skin, and all sorts of other symptoms. There's no cure for rheumatoid arthritis, but you can prevent the condition from worsening. Weight loss is one way to improve symptoms and prevent progression. Physical therapy to strengthen muscles, that's also good, to support joints. 
It's not known exactly how methotrexate works in rheumatoid arthritis, but it can reduce inflammation and slow the progression of the disease. There's no direct veterinary or natural version of methotrexate, but a few rheumatoid arthritis studies show some benefit for certain supplements and natural remedies. The research is still in its early stage, so the bottom line isn't clear yet on these. Keep in mind that supplements can affect other medications, so tell your doctor about any you take, even if they're totally natural, so that he or she can check that it's safe for you. Glucosamine supplements have been reported by patients to improve pain, but there is no hard data that exists that show an improvement in joint swelling or function. You would take 1,500 milligrams once a day on a regular basis. Glucosamine is often paired with chondroitin sulfate, 800 to 1,200 milligrams a day, and has been shown to possibly slow progression of some arthritis conditions. Unfortunately, those are usually degenerative or osteoarthritis rather than rheumatoid arthritis. Other promising supplements do exist. They include fish oil. Several studies have shown that fish oil supplements may help reduce morning stiffness with rheumatoid arthritis. Omega-3s curb inflammation, and they help protect against heart disease as well. That's good for people with rheumatoid arthritis who are more likely than other people to get heart disease. Fish oil appears to be safe when used appropriately, but don't use more than 3 grams a day because of the risk of bleeding that might occur. And now here's one I know you haven't heard of. That's Thunder God Vine. What? Yep. Thunder God Vine, otherwise known as Tripterygium wilfordii. It's been used in China for conditions involving inflammation or overactivity of the immune system, like rheumatoid arthritis, for hundreds of years. A few studies using 60 milligrams of the extract, which is made from the skinned root of the plant, up to three times a day, have shown a drop in inflammation and tender joints in people with rheumatoid arthritis. But there's more. There's actually science behind this. A large government-funded study compared this root with sulfasalazine, a traditional drug used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, and found that symptoms improved more with the use of thunder god vine. Side effects are unfortunately not too unusual, and they could include stomach upset, headache, hair loss, and upper respiratory infections. Pregnant women and women with poor bone density, osteoporosis, should not take this supplement. Keep in mind that it's hard to get safe and high-quality Thunder God Vine made in the U.S. It grows in China. The safety and effectiveness of Thunder God Vine supplements from outside the U.S., of course, is always hard to verify. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Oh, hey, make an old man very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy with Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour on Blog Talk Radio, and the new current events podcast, American Survival Radio, at GCNlive.com. You'll find links at doomandbloom.net. On omega-3s, I I am a a huge fan of omega-3s. I believe personally that from a biochemical standpoint, rheumatoid arthritis or not, the majority of Americans are out of balance in their omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. And this is because of where they come from so and where they're stored in the body of animals. So if you were eating mostly grass-fed animals and pastured animals and you ate organ meats and marrow and bone stock and connective tissues and all that, you'd get a a fantastic omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. Um, Humans don't really do a good job of getting omega-3s from plants. We just don't. 
I know the miracle of flax and all that, but the reality is we actually get the precursors to make the type of omega-3 we need from things like flax. We don't get it in the form that we need it, and if our hormones aren't perfectly in tune, then it's hard for that conversion to happen, and you can eat all the flax you want if your hormonal activity is out of whack, and many Americans are, and you won't get the omega-3 lift from it that you would expect. So the best alternative is to eat something that has a massive amount of omega-3 in it and, and, and the right form for us. And the best thing to eat is something some people love and some people don't, and that would be sardines. Sardines are probably the best uh, low-toxin uh, yield form of omega-3s that can be readily uh, acquired. And if you are willing to eat sardines, if you like sardines, I have the sardine for you, my friend. Uh, it is called Matisse, Matisse Gallego uh, sardines. Uh, they are a fantastic product uh, from Spain, uh, harvested off the waters of Spain and Portugal. Uh, they're bigger than what you would expect. There's about three to a can, yet they're a four and a quarter ounce can. They're packed in olive oil. If you're going to eat sardines for health purposes, you need it to be packed in one of three things and three things only. The best, the gold standard, and this does not have that, and it's very hard to find sardines that are packed in this, their own oil. If you can find good quality sardines packed in their own oil, it is an absolute omega-3 and other wonderful things for you powerhouse. The next best thing would be a, a, a great quality oil, and the only one that they use that's really a good quality oil for human consumption uh, to pack sardines in would be not soybean oil, but you guessed it, olive oil. True olive oil packed. That's what the Matisse uh, sardines are packed in. And then your third and last choice would be pure water. No soybean oil, no tomato paste, no mustard, no things that you don't know what's really in there. And if you want additional characteristics, you want to have something with it, you add that yourself. If you don't want to do that, then what Doc Bones recommends with fish oil capsules is a great idea. However, in the Protein Power Life Plan, I learned about several studies done where fish oil capsules were randomly pulled off shelves all over the country, and 50% were found to have actually rancid oils. And since you're eating them in a gel cap, you would not know that they are rancid. You would not know they have gone rancid on you. So what do you do if that's the approach you want to take? Well, this will require about once a week having a, a flavor that's similar to Sardini-ish that you don't really like, but it's only once a week, and otherwise you don't you want to eat it. And that would be once a week, you take a little pin and you prick a little hole in one of your little gel caps and you taste and smell the oil. If it's rancid, you'll know it. You do not want to consume rancid oils. The very best oils and fats in the world, when they become rancid, are toxic to the human system in ways I won't get into today. But I just wanted to add that little kick in there for omega-3s. Another source of good omega-3s is very similar to sardines, but people can often eat them when they can't eat sardines. Kippered herring does not have as much omega-3, but it's a damn good source. They're usually skinless, boneless, and smoked. And blended with homemade, real mayonnaise that you make from eggs all by yourself, not from crap you buy in the store, uh, which will actually look generally yellow because we make it with yolks. Um, and avocado is fantastic as a tuna-like product. To me, it tastes a lot better than tuna, avocado and mayo, or one or the other, or straight by themselves. But if you put them on crackers, you've lost the whole low-carb thing. 
Those are some suggestions I would have. The other option is to actually take cod liver oil. Find a good quality cod liver oil because I promise you if it goes rancid, you will not eat it. Next thing I would say is when you do find good fish oil capsules, try to find ones with the newest date on them as possible and store them in your refrigerator and they will be less likely to go rancid on you. So a little pinch hitting there go along with Doc Bones. Speaking of that, I now have a question for Darby Simpson on making your own uh, grain-based feed blends for pastured poultry and pork. And he kind of calls in Nick Ferguson at the end of it for some thoughts on fermented feeds. And I am just going to play the two of those in a row, and then I'll come back with my final segment. We'll wrap things up. We'll have a great song and some great advice about the Ass Clown Circus from no less than himself, Jimmy Buffett. And with that, Darby, take it away. And again, Nick will follow right along. Hello once again, everybody. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Evan all the way from Australia. And Evan is looking at uh, setting up and managing his own fiefdom, like Joel Salatin talks about, on his uh, cousin's 6,000-acre grain farm in uh, a semi-arid area of Australia. And uh, he's wanting to seasonally produce some pork and chicken, uh, you know, by buying in some baby chicks and some wiener piglets and, uh, you know, setting up shop there and trying to make a go of, of raising some, some pastured animals. And, uh, you know, his, his main question is, is wanting to know about can he custom mix his own feed. His family currently grows wheat, barley, oats, lupins, canola, and lentils. And he wanted to know if it would be possible to create a balanced diet for pigs or broilers from these grains. And uh, he goes on to say, you know, they're going to be on pasture, but there's there's not any forage like acorns or chestnuts. And, uh, you know, he's really wanting to start small uh, with one or both of these animals. And, you know, he just wants to know, can he make a, a, you know, a complete feed? And Evan's got a really neat, what we would call an unfair advantage. And that is that he can set up shocker and he's got free housing. He's got uh, free land leasing and very, very cheap feeds. So he wanted my opinion on creating a, a balanced diet from these feeds. And Evan, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I think you've got a pretty neat opportunity here uh, to get started with a farming enterprise that could be very profitable very quickly. I, I would say that the short answer is yes, I do think that you can make a complete feed uh, from these grains. Now, I had to do a little bit of reading on a, a couple of things here, particularly lupins. I had never heard of lupins before, so I had to look those up on the good old Internet and uh, found a pretty neat graph that, that basically compared lupins to soybeans. And from what I can tell, nutritionally speaking, uh, lupins are almost identical to a soybean. They're very, very high in protein uh, from the reading I did. And that was my, my main concern when I read through all those things was, gosh, I don't know, can this guy get enough protein in his feed? But if lupins are all that the, uh, the Australian website I found uh, makes them out to be, then I would say you're not going to have a, a hard time, uh, you know, making a complete feed here. Now, um, what I would tell you to do, Evan, is to try and find a supplement company to work with. What we do here uh, on our farm and what a, a lot of people in the United States do, uh, most of our feeds here are going to be comprised of corn, 
for the energy and soybeans for the protein. If you're in the deep south, like down where Jack is at, uh, there are some options to use peanuts instead of soy. But one way or another, we got to have energy. we got to have protein. You've got those things. But what most people here do is they, they will actually purchase, uh, and, and in my case, I'm purchasing, or I should say my mill is purchasing, a certified organic uh, complete mineral mix because no matter how we're raising all of our grains with very, very few exceptions, they're still going to be mineral deficient because of decades of poor farming techniques in row cropping. So this mineral mix basically makes it a complete feed. It boosts all the minerals back up uh, to, to where the animals need them to be uh, so that they'll be healthy and they will thrive. Uh, what I would encourage you to do is, is try and find a company that makes a complete mineral balancer that you would add to grains to make a complete feed and work with uh, a nutritionist that they might have on staff there to figure out exactly what you need to mix uh, for broilers or, or for pigs. Uh, you've got a lot to work with here and I'm, uh, you know, you, you can basically take uh, something that your cousins might look at as a waste product and 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 value add it by feeding it to one of these animals. So, you know, your, your wheat, your barley, uh, your, your oats, uh, those are great energy sources. Obviously, the lupins are, are going to be a, a good protein source. Um, your lentils and, and canola are, are, are going to be, it looks, I'm, I'm, from what I can tell, going to be a slightly less, you know, protein uh, than the lupins, but you know, maybe a bit more than the other thing. So, so long, I think, as you've got a good supply of, of lupins that you can probably mix and match this other stuff to come up with a complete feed. But I would, you know, work with one of these companies, tell them what you've got to work with, and then let them tell you, you know, per ton of feed, you know, how many pounds of each do you need to mix to, to get a complete feed for broilers that are zero to 21 days old and then from you know 22 days uh you know to, through finish or whatever typically here that's going to be a 21 percent protein through three weeks and then like you know 19 or 18 percent depending from three weeks uh through finish your pigs typically you might be at like a 17 maybe an 18 percent starter and then you you, you knock them down to like a 16 or 15 percent finishing feed but yeah, work with them, and then also don't be afraid to mix in, uh, particularly for your broilers, some organic fish meal. Uh, that that's something that we mix in here, and I it I tell you, I think it makes a huge difference uh, with these faster growing meat birds on pasture. It it it's it's all protein, but it gives them a different amino acid complex. That's how it was explained to me. I'm not a biologist. I don't totally understand it. All I can tell you is the birds are way better off when they've got. Uh, a little bit of uh, organic fish meal in their diet than when they don't. So uh, don't be afraid to add that, you know, and then some mixing salt, some calcium supplement, things of that nature. But um, hopefully you've got a company over there that does something like that, and they can help you out uh, to get these things dialed in. You're just going to need a good mixer grinder uh, there on your farm and then a way to store the feed. And, buddy, I, I tell you what, I think you're off to the races, man. So I'd say go for it. If this is what you want to do, man – Take this opportunity by the horns and 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 hit it and, and go for it and uh, you know make something of it. Man, that's that's just a, a phenomenal opportunity. I think a lot of people listening would would like to have free housing and free land leasing on a six thousand acre grain farm. 
Um, just a couple of other notes. It, you're talking about your climate and you know how you only get uh, like eight to ten inches of rain a year, and you've got a really hot, bone dry summer. Uh, Evan, set yourself up for success. Don't start raising these animals uh, going into that hot, dry season. Um, do it, you know, beforehand or just after, particularly when you're first learning until you kind of get the hang of things and, and kind of get things ironed out a bit, bit and get your systems in place. Uh, work with that gentle, cool, moderately wet, uh, you know, fall and spring season you talk about in your email. Uh, just, you know, set yourself up for success early on so that you're not fighting too many battles at one time. Uh, you also mentioned something about you're willing to ferment your feeds, if that would help. Uh, I don't know anything about fermenting feeds. I'm going to have to defer you uh, to my co-council member, Nick Ferguson, on that one. Uh, Nick has done a little bit of that on his homestead uh, down south, and he might be able to chime in and help you out a little bit there. We just use all dry feeds here. So anyway, that's all I got for you, Evan. Uh, hopefully that helps you out. Uh, if not, feel free to shoot me an email uh, through my website at darbysimpson.com. Uh, for everyone else listening, if you want to learn more about me, you can go out to that website. There's a bunch of free blog articles out there. Um, if you need more assistance than that, I do offer one-on-one -on -one consultations. If you are a TSP MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on those consultations. You just look up the discount code in the uh, MSB support section. As always, everyone, thanks for shooting these questions in. I really enjoy coming on and answering for you guys. Uh, everyone have a wonderful, wonderful weekend and take care. Hey guys, Nick Ferguson here from homegrownliberty.com responding to Darby's reference on fermenting chicken feed. And just so you guys know, I talk about fermenting chicken feed in episode 21 of my podcast and also about raising mealworms for chickens in episode 26. I think both of those would be beneficial for you to look into. Raising mealworms to supplement your protein needs is super simple and is actually perfect in a dry climate with ready access to cheap grain that you could process to feed the larvae. I think that would be a fantastic addition to your feed. And for anyone looking to lean out their financial outlay for keeping chickens to make it a little bit more affordable and help them be a little healthier and have better nutrition to give you better meat and better eggs, then I would definitely recommend fermenting your chicken feed and raising some insects. Mealworms are super simple. You can also raise things like crickets and cockroaches, although most people will shy away from the cockroaches idea. But insects and fermenting feed are great for your birds. But I specifically wanted to talk about fermenting feed. And I assume if you're getting started, learning the ropes and completely new to the process, you'll probably be starting with fermenting feed in a smaller quantity because you'll not have tons and tons of birds. So containers that are easy to move around like a 20 liter plastic bucket. But if you're feeding larger amounts, you'll probably be looking at needing to use something like a 205-liter plastic drum with a removable lid. And for everyone in the U.S., that's like 44 gallons. So something like a 55-gallon drum that has a removable lid. And that makes it easy to open up, fill, empty, and clean out periodically because you'll need to do that. Now, I don't really have time to get into all the details of how to ferment feed in the limited time here, but check out the podcast episode 21 for a good explanation and just scale things up. 
If you're counting on larger amounts of feed being ready and safe for your animals, I definitely make a lactobacillus starter that you can add to the batch of feed when you wet it down. And that's just going to mean um, doing a rice wash. You're going to attract the lactobacillus. You're going to breed that in the rice wash. And then you're going to add that to some milk, like a gallon of milk. And um, you'll let that kind of ferment. You'll let the lactobacillus go. And then it'll separate it out into basically curds and a clear yellowish fluid. And that clear yellowish fluid is your lactobacillus starter. I can give you all some specific details on that in an upcoming episode. But that'll really help make sure you're on the right track with bacteria versus yeast. And you don't really want to be fermenting that with yeast. You want the lactobacillus bacteria. And one more note. I think cracked grains work best for this. Not like milled like flour, but cracked. It lets them hydrate quicker and ferment better. And by cracked, I mean very, very coarsely ground. Think of a grain of wheat broken into 6 to 12 pieces or a kernel of corn broken into pieces that are about half the size of a grain of wheat. And that's kind of what you're shooting for. You don't want flour or finely ground particles because it makes stirring and mixing much more difficult and a real pain. And it makes for more waste because animals would just kind of smear it. So anyways, those are my quick response thoughts on fermenting feed for a larger operation. If you want to find the podcast, it's on iTunes, or you can go directly to my website, homegrownliberty.com. That's where you'll find all my blog articles and the podcast episodes on fermenting feed and raising mealworms, along with a ton of other great topics. You can email me directly, nick at homegrownliberty.com. I'll talk to you guys again soon. Do good things. Great stuff from both of those guys. I'll, I'll throw in... Uh, first of all, the link to episode 26 on uh, Homegrown Liberty, where Nick talks in depth about doing the fermentation. I have a link in the show notes for you guys, so you can jump right over there. Or you can go to his website and look it up, and all the other great podcasts he's doing. He's putting out an episode a week. He's doing a fantastic job. I really recommend that you subscribe to it. But I want to give you one caution on fermenting grains for livestock. It goes from being an okay feed to an incredible feed that your animals will love, to catfish chum really fast if you're not careful. One of the best catfish chums you can make is simply fermented wheat. Um, and the stink is unbelievable. So my caution here is not actually don't do it or worry about it or what have you. It is that... Have a system and procedure in place to make as much as you need for a given yield to be fed, to be recycled, to be redone, and stick to it. Because if you f like, just let it go for a couple more days, you're not going to be happy at all. I'm just saying. So the next question I have is for a guy with a horrible, horrible problem. He has a surplus of Dungeness crabs. And I, I have my own solution to this. What you should do with all those terrible, horrible Dungeness crabs that keep showing up is you should pack them in, in, in dry ice and put them in a box and send them to Nine Mile Farm, care of Jack Spirit. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Chef Keith, we've got a lot of crabs and uh, a desire to have multiple things we can do with these crabs other than just crab and drawn butter and crab cakes. So like I said, I think I could drink, eat crab and drawn butter uh, every day of my life and never complain. But uh, also in dealing with storage because, you know, these are something you get in abundance and then no more until next year. So, Keith, take it away, man.
Hey, Corey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. wanted to address your question about what to do with a surplus of Dungeness crabs. Now, boy, you talk about a good problem to have. You're getting 15 to 22-pound dungies each week. Dude, you're killing it, man. You're killing me because I don't have diddly squat here in the Carolinas for crab meat. Um, but I wanted to start addressing this question, which is more like, two or three questions, but let me get right into it. First of all, um, years ago when I was shooting a lot of videos and TV, this company called the Phillips Crab Company um, started sending me crab products. And it got a little ridiculous because they sent me these two boxes and they were um, one pound cans of jumbo lump crab meat. Now, unfortunately, that stuff is Thai. It comes from Thailand. Was it delicious? Sure it was. I would much prefer some um, Seattle Dungies. But anyway, they were canned. Now, when you can foods, this is another thing they call it as retorting. So soups, lots of stuff that are in cans are, are retorted. The food is treated, cooked, placed in cans, and then lit it up, and then they go into these giant vacuum chambers. They look like a submarine that's inside of a building. Big, you know, the big wheel, you twist the wheel, the end of the submarine opens up, they roll giant racks of thousands of these cans in there, close it up, spin it shut, and then it's pressurized and they pump superheated steam into that pressure cavity. Now, that enables them to go way above 212 degrees, which is the most you're going to get at sea level doing a water bath can. Now, you certainly can do pressure canning at home with a pressure canner, and you can take your crab, Cook it, pick it, soak it in a solution of lemon juice or vinegar. Then you put it into um, jars, and it can be pressure canned. Um, you know, and it, it's going to take probably 60 minutes at least to pressure can this stuff. Now, that's an awfully involved method, and and what it does do is produce pretty uh, tinny tasting crab. In other words, it's a little acidic. It almost tastes like a tin can. That's what I'm getting at. But I'm not saying it's terrible. That's something to look into if you're, you know, if you've got all the supplies there for pressure canning. You have to have a good pressure canner. I recommend the brand called All American, by the way, made in Wisconsin. Um, so that's something that you can do. Now, to me, that's a it's a giant pain in the rump to do all that. Um, what I would suggest is freezing. Now, you can freeze crab meat can also freeze entire whole crabs. They've got to be cooked first. Now, those dungies, you're saying they're two pounds. That's a pretty big crab. That's, you know, even though there's a lot of shell weight there, the point is when you, when you boil those things and you take them out, you don't want to be um, putting them in the freezer until they're fully cooled, or you don't want to be bagging them up until they're fully cooled. So you're going to want to put them on racks into your refrigerator Cool those suckers down as fast as humanly possible, and you can freeze the entire crab. Um, the best way to do it is to wrap, if you're going to do the whole crab, in other words, not picking the meat out, you can take the crab, wrap it in like butcher paper. You can buy butcher paper, I think, at a place like Costco, and then stick them inside of vacuum bags. I would vacuum, seal them, and the butcher paper, the point of it is, is crabs can be sharp. You know, think of crab legs, man. Those things have some gnarly points on them. And if you're vacuum sealing them and you're sucking a hard vacuum, a lot of times you'll puncture the bag and the vacuum seal won't happen. If you wrap it in a few layers of butcher paper 
and put that in there. You can um, usually vacuum seal them and then freeze them and they'll last you know the better part of a year that way so when dungy season is long gone you'll be living absolutely large with your frozen crab you just take them out to frost them pick the crab meat and go on as usual i will throw out the normal caveat when you are freezing things keep in mind people don't understand as they take vegetables or meat or whatever out of the freezer and they'll notice that the texture is a little weird um, freezing is a very powerful force of nature. Now think about your highway. You get a crack in the road, you know, it's November and it rains and water drips. Of course, it's going to find its lowest uh, point. It gets down into the cracks in the road and then you get a hard freeze. That ice, the formation of ice is so powerful and it expands. Ice expands. So it expands so much that it will toss the road up. I mean, it breaks the concrete or the blacktop. It's called frost heaves. And this is what happens to a lot of roads where you have um, a, lot, a wet climate that gets gets to um, under freezing. The roads get beat up really bad. That's the force of that ice. Now imagine that's cement or blacktop. That's hard stuff. It's hard as cement. But crab meat and vegetables, they're not so hard. And when you freeze them, there's going to be moisture in all these things. There's moisture inside of crab meat. There's moisture inside of peppers. There's moisture inside of okra, whatever you're freezing. And when it gets frozen, ice crystals form, and those things are sharp. And they're, they're going to make that meat, um, the texture's going to change. So just you have to understand that. That's the way it is. Just like if you um, pressure can the crab, it's going to taste a little tinny. You have to generally add some lemon juice to up that acidic content so it's safe. Um, you're going to wind up with something slightly different than fresh. There's no um, different. Any type of food preservation method is going to alter the product from its fresh state, whether it's freeze-drying, dehydrating, canning, freezing, you know, cooking and freezing, whatever, you're going to have something different. Now I throw that out there just so people understand. Now in your, in your question, Corey, you say, you know, some recipes beyond crab cakes. Dude, I love crab cakes. What, what's wrong with crab cakes? But I can understand it does get a little boring. Um, one thing that I absolutely love is, um, like a Thai crab salad. Now in Thailand, like I mentioned earlier, the cans of crab come from, they have abundant crab over there and making um, a crab salad is a beautiful thing and I first learned this from one of my dear friends in Montana uh, a lady from Thailand sweet sweet woman and this woman learned how to cook from all the old Thai ladies so to me um, when I got to know her, I, I, you know, I readily admitted I've got an ulterior motive. I want to hang around with you because I want to steal all your recipes. But she was very gracious in um, letting me cook alongside of her, learning her methods. One of the things she showed me was this Thai fish salad. Now, years and years ago, I'd made something with a similar Asian flair. No, not a similar Asian, with an Asian flair, but nowhere near as good as this. So what you can do is take that crab meat, and then it's basically it's a marination process, and you're going to use the typical flavors of Thailand. Salty, sweet, spicy, that's how they make food. And typically, some of the flavors you're going to find very often used are cilantro, lime juice, sugar, um, chilies, coconut sugar, things like that, tamarind paste, 
all that stuff, fish sauce, soy sauce, very, very popular, onions, garlic. And if you take those ingredients in varying amounts and make a crab, like a Thai crab salad, this is something you'd serve room temperature or even chilled. It is awesome. So you take, let's say, a pound of crab meat. You would, What I would do is I would saute an onion, finely minced with about four or five cloves of garlic, and that's a lot of garlic. And I would saute that in a little coconut oil, and I would do it, cook it hard so you get a little bit of color on it. It really cooks down. And then I would take that mixture, um, cool it off, and then I would toss that in a bowl, and in that would go fish sauce, soy sauce, sugar, some type of um, chili paste. And if you go to an Asian store, you can even find crab paste, which comes from um, usually Thailand. It's a little bottle, and it's cooked down crab with some tomato and chilies and garlic. Pretty awesome stuff. Maybe a pinch of that in there. Um, rice wine vinegar, lime juice, cilantro. Mix this stuff up and um, pour it over your crab. Toss it around. Let it marinate for about an hour in the fridge. And then when I served it, um, I would serve it on a platter, you know, pile it up with some, you know, freshly squeezed lime juice, some lime wedges, a bunch of cilantro. And that is incredible. Just a, it, I mean, the taste of that is crazy good. Now, other things, um, I've made, we've had parties before back when I was in the restaurant business. We had big executives flying in from Canada and we would do sushi parties. And one of the big hits always was our jumbo lump crab um, sushi. And we would do that in a variety of ways. We would take those big lump knuckles and put them um, on top of rice. You see, when you go to a sushi place, you've got that little molded rice with a piece of fish on it. We would put um, crab meat like that. Or we would do rolls where we rolled it up with avocado and other things, cilantro. Brilliant that way. Um, of course, crab cakes are unbelievable too. Um, I did a video years ago and I made crab and cheese. And this is one of the areas I'm not a big fan of uh, seafood and cheese, but for some reason, um, some beautiful gruyere and crab meat, a little mayonnaise, some green onions and garlic stuffed into a tomato and baked with some uh, panko breadcrumbs on top. That's yummy. Also, Crab soup down in the south around Charleston, very famous for something called she crab soup. There's tens of thousands of recipes on the internet for making that delicious stuff if it's done right. And I've had it in Charleston a few times and it can be yummy. There's a place in Charleston for those of you that might be there someday. I'm pretty sure it's called Fleet Landing and it's a restaurant that is basically out in the harbor and uh, they have excellent she crab soup there, by the way. But um, you can make crab soup, which is an awesome thing to do. Um, but you mentioned a crab-themed meal. I would definitely be interested in um, doing that that Thai thing where you went over with a – you could do the crab salad, and that way they're getting a lot of crab. You can also do crab rice. Basically, you make some um, jasmine rice, and then you're going to saute a bunch of vegetables, onions, garlic, scallions, carrot, minced-up carrot. Um, what else could you use? Some tomato, and and you basically stir fry these vegetables. You add your um, cooked rice that you know that could be day old rice, and then you season that up again with those Thai flavors: sugar, um, chilies, soy sauce, fish sauce, lime juice, a little bit of oil, 
Um, toss that all around. Then you can take some of your crab meat and put it in there and just toss that and you make crab rice, which is wonderful stuff. Now, you don't want to be cooking the, the, the crab meat's already cooked. You don't want to be putting it in at the beginning. When the crab, when the fried rice is basically what you're making, when it's already done, you toss in, you know, a pound. You're, you got this stuff coming out backwards, dude. Put a pound or two into your, into your rice dish, toss it all around, and that can be uh, unbelievable. Now, Chris, I'm running really long. Jack's going to kill me, so i got to go, dude. Enjoy those crabs. Everyone out there, thanks for supporting Harvest Eating and TSP. Hope you have a great weekend. Later. So last question of the day is for me. It's an interesting one. It's one I really hadn't given much thought to. Um, I don't think it's actually that huge of a concern, but let me read the question to you, and I'll tell you why I think it's not the biggest concern in the world right now for people. At what stage in the transformation of our education system will homes in areas considered to be desirable due to good, great public schools start to see a negative impact on real estate values? Background. We live in a town that is annually ranked in the top 50 public school districts in the nation. In the future, if good education will not require living in a certain area, it would make sense to sell my property for full market value before the real estate drop occurs. Thanks. Tim, okay, uh, just understand when I say I think that the writing is on the wall for the education system, I'm looking at a timeline of at least five years before people are willing to admit it and another 10 years for it to really play out. We're looking at a 15-year time horizon, and frankly, a lot of different things can affect property values far more than education, positive or negative, over a 15-year period. So if I'm looking to move from my home right now and I have a nice house that is expensive and things, I'm going to have to have a lot more compelling reason to move than when the education system falls on its ass, it's going to hurt my property value. I really don't think that's the case. And, and this is here's a couple reasons why. One, this will not be overnight. This will not happen overnight. It will be slow over time. And the institutions will fight back and the government will fight it, kicking and screaming all the way, to what should take five to seven years might, instead of 15 years, take 30 right now. We, we really don't know how. We know that and we know what is coming. Okay. Number two, if you look at places that have good schools, you will find that there is a lot of people that live there that have kids, and one of the many criteria that they looked for when buying their house was a place with good schools. But you will find single people, you will find grown people who, when their kids leave, they don't move out of that neighborhood because they don't need the schools anymore. They stay put because you will generally find that school districts with good schools, if you want to, how, whatever you mean by that. By the way, we currently judge them because when everybody says, well, the schools are better, I say, good at what? Indoctrination, you know, uh, revisionist history, uh, meaningless test scores, uh, sending children to be in debt for the rest of their life to college. Better. So, but I'll put that aside to say that I understand people make that decision. But it's not the only reason they make the decision. And you also generally have what driving good school districts, and that's high tax revenues, uh, meaning nice houses, uh, nice neighborhoods, and you have a that being a driving factor. In other words, you don't have shitty housing and good schools. 
right? So when people choose a, a neighborhood, the school district's one of those things that has to be there, but that neighborhood is going to probably have a good school district by the way that we currently judge things. Or they wouldn't be looking to buy a house there in the first place when, when people are making that choice. They've already decided, I want a certain type of house in a certain type of neighborhood with a certain reasonable safety and security and certain modernness and, and all of those other things. It's, it's very seldom that someone is, is buying a really beautiful house in a really beautiful neighborhood and then their kids are getting sent to like, you know, the, the lowest school district in the county or something like that. So there's other reasons that people buy those houses. Now, here's the actual play chess, not checkers, and think all the way through. If you get to a point where we really do see the modern education system completely fall apart 15, 20 years from now, and because of that, the actual writing on the wall becomes a reality on the ground, and schools begin closing their doors, they begin downsizing, they have less teachers, they cost less money. In theory, now government always finds a way to justify stealing money, but in theory, it actually should either reduce property taxes or reduce how much property taxes go up by, at least the school portion of the property tax. Um, of the, the thousands of dollars that I pay in property tax right now, about 35 to 40% of that is for the schools, right? The other 60, 65% is for the hospital, the county this, the dog catcher that, whatever, okay? So that portion should stop having at least the need to be jacked up, which would actually reduce the ratio of cost of home to property tax. Because when people buy a home, they don't buy a home based on it costing $250,000. They buy a home based on the fact that I can afford $1,800 a month. Taxes, insurance, and principal and interest. That's how people make that decision. What are current? So you're gonna, even if you have the education system completely fall apart, interest rates on a mortgage are far more of a worry than good school districts as to the effect on property values in nice neighborhoods. So I, I wouldn't really worry much about this. Now, this is what I find. A lot of times when people ask a question like this, it's somewhat logical. It's pretty well thought out. It does beg the question a little bit to at least look at it. But what I often find is it's the same thing as when somebody asks a totally different sounding question like, you know, I'm worried about the end of the world as we know it, and I think we need to be investing in more guns, but my wife says we need to be investing in more things like being able to can our own foods. And I think that insecurity is going to be very much the most important thing. So, so what you're really saying is, Jack, please help me convince my wife to buy a gun, or Jack, please help me convince my wife that it's time to move because I don't really want to live here anymore. I want a less expensive house in an area that's uh, more conducive to what I want. If that's it, see, now I'm not saying that's what the person asking the question is actually saying, but I am saying a lot of times when people start asking questions like this, the underlying thing is I really want an excuse to do ABC, and I think it's important that we always ask ourselves if that's what we're doing. And if you are, then we need to find that underlying angst or that underlying desire or that underlying problem or whatever it is that's driving the surface level question and address it so that we can actually address it from a more 
prudent and practical standpoint. Because what you may be thinking is, all these other reasons I want to move plus this. Okay, then it's not even the cherry on the top of the sundae. All right? You know when you pull the cherry off the sundae and you eat the cherry and there's a little bit of the cherry juice left in the in the uh, frosting and it's kind of, it doesn't really taste anything but it makes you think it does when you when you take that off with your spoon that's what this is for the decision to to sell your home and move it's it's the residue of the cherry juice on the whipped cream and you don't count the whipped cream you just count the cherry juice added to the whipped cream because the whipped cream was already there but you may find a whole sunday of reasons to leave it costs too damn much money our kids really you know we there are other opportunities we can homeschool so we don't care anymore whatever that is um or it may be that this is how i personally feel if you have kids that are already close to or in high school and they're relatively happy with their school and they're doing well Unless there's some other compelling reason, I would stick it out, get them through school, and move after they graduate. Because it's difficult for children who are well-adjusted and who are happy and who want to be in a, a, a specific school or peer group or whatever to be yanked out of that or separated from that. One of the, the most difficult things for me in raising my, my son, Matt, was the number of times we, we did move. And we did, that affected his school, we did that twice. And once was away and once was back to the same school district. So that was a little easier to do. But one promise that I made to him when we decided we had to move back here from Pennsylvania was, and we told him that and he was kind of upset about it, I will not do this to you in the middle of the school year. Now, I'm not saying you're bad if you do, and I had to move when I was a kid in the middle of school years, and it was difficult, but I got over it, and it was okay. I'm saying if it can be avoided, it makes sense to do so. That's another thing to think about in this whole school thing. Now, if they're going to be going to no longer be in school and go to a self-directed education program, which is the way that I pr favor to describe it other than homeschooling, self-directed education or parent-chaperoned education. These are your alternatives to government school. Government school at home is still government school, right? If, if that's the, the alternative and the child's excited about it, I don't think it matters. I think you can pull them out in the middle, the end, the beginning. It doesn't matter. However, if you live in a state that doesn't frown on homeschooling, but they don't like it, and they have a, a tendency to harass homeschool families here and there a bit, It may make sense to complete the, if there's no pressing need, there's no abuse, the kid's not doing miserable, he's not depressed, he's okay, he's kind of excited about the whole opportunity, you finish this year out strong, son or daughter, and we'll bring you home. Um, it may make sense, just from a tactical standpoint, because then you don't kind of raise the hair on the back of the necks of the status teacher who says, but Johnny didn't show up, and then, oh, Johnny went home, oh, I'm worried about, it. see, that's where a lot of this stuff happens, a lot of this stuff is highly complaint-driven stuff, and if no one complains, no one bothers anybody, right? So, if, if you are fed up with your school district, and, uh, I, like, right now, kids are out of school, the time to file and, and do all your stuff, or whatever you have to do in your state would be now, Right, And if you do ever decide that you've had enough of a teacher and you are going to pull your kids out of school, and I wonder if Michael and Sue LaPreeze would agree with this. Personally, I, I would do it this way. Now, my when my kid was a kid, right, uh, I was a little more hot-headed, believe it or not, than I am now, and I probably would have done exactly what I'm advising you against 
unless I would have thought about it this way. Let's say I had a real problem with a teacher and I was done. And I'm like, that's it. It's the final straw or an administrator or whatever. I'm going to homeschool. I'd let that cool for a week. And then I would, without even talking to them, without saying anything, I would just initiate the process, however you do that in your state. I would make a big deal out of it. I wouldn't say, that's it, I've had it, I'm pulling my son out of school. Because that that agitates an already agitated situation. And then, oh, I need to do something to protect this child. That's within the mind of these statists, right? And that's that's what they are. You you. It's hard to be more statist-minded than to be employed by a government agency. And if any government agency will convince you of the need for your existence as a government employee, it's a government school. Please remember, when you talk to your friends and neighbors and they say public school, you say what? Oh, you mean the government schools. Yes, the government schools. And you know that now we're hearing more and more from people within the system. They don't like that word because they think it's a bad thing. It is a bad thing, but it's an actual factual thing. The schools are government schools, so please keep calling them that. And the more they get irritated, the more we should do it. With that, guys, let me remind you, if you want to help support this show, the best way to do that is to join the Members Support Brigade, or MSB as we call it. By doing that, you will support this show and the work that I do. It is the only way this show has been able to be here uh, as an endeavor for eight years and as a full-time endeavor, uh, I guess now for six and a half years. It was a year and a half into it that I went full-time. It's how it's grown. It's how we brought you the expert counsel. It's how we've done all these different things that we've done and related projects over the years. It's what enables me to be here for you five days a week for an hour to an hour and a half on average a day. I thank you to everyone who's ever been a member, everyone that's ever watched this or watched, listened to this show or shared it with anybody else. But a huge thank you to everybody that's an active member today because you're the guys that pay the bills around here. And I don't think people understand what it takes to support this show from my side at this point. To support the audience we have, I spend about $1,000 a month on server bills. Just on server bills to support the gigabits, the, I'm sorry, the terabytes, the terabytes of bandwidth that are required to support this show every single month, terabytes of bandwidth. And uh, I thank you so much, all of you, who have helped make that possible. Um, I just want to say a little thing here about the independence this show has. Over the years, I've been offered opportunities to get into terrestrial radio, to get into satellite radio, to become parts of networks with other podcasters and things like that. And it always comes with strings. It always comes up with giving up freedom, independence, and autonomy. And I've always said, I appreciate the offer. It's very flattering. No thank you to most people. And then there's some people that are kind of sleazy that I've basically said, well, you can piss off uh, or something to that effect. But most people have just said, you know, I appreciate the offer. It's flattering, but no thank you. It is the support of the audience, you guys, that make me able to do that. That make me able to – and the other thing you guys enabled me to do is to tell you the truth, to even piss you off. Because I have enough individuals that don't piss everybody off at the same time and not everybody goes away. And you have to ask yourself, when I offend you, remember we had the segment at the beginning of the show, would you prefer that I offend you or that I lie to you? Would you prefer that I offend you or would you prefer that I really think something but I don't say it because I don't want to? Do you want honesty and integrity even when you disagree with it or do you want someone to pander to what you want to hear? It is running this show independently. Completely independently 
based on the listener support and respect for the work we do, even when you don't agree with everything, this made that possible. So consider that when you think about whether or not you want to join the MSB. And then think about this. If you use the benefits, you'll get all your money back and more. It will cost you nothing in the end. Always, uh, always think about that when you're making spending determinations. And on that note, my uh, Amazon item of the day today is um, the Fletcher's Mill Pepper Mill. This is a uh, pepper mill that can be 25 bucks to 50 bucks, depending on how you want it to look, the finish on the outside of it. Uh, you can look that up at tspaz.com. And, you know, when I first mentioned this to somebody, I said, why the hell would anybody pay 50 bucks or even for the painted one, 25 bucks? Because uh, that's the difference. Like the, the, the ones that are 50 bucks are like hand finished, pretty wood. And the ones that are like less money are like lacquered paint, right? So that's, that's why the difference in the cost. For, for a pepper mill, you can get one for 10 bucks at the grocery store, you know? Well, after you throw away, you know, five, six, seven of those things, you start to add the cost up and realize the cost is higher over the lifetime cost. I found this one um, nine years ago, and today I just cracked pepper on my eggs before I wrote that up and started my work for the day. That's why, because it lasts for damn near ever. For reviews on products like that, and to support this show whenever you shop on Amazon for anything, just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com, and do your Amazon shopping through tspaz. That's all you got to do. But you'll see reviews of products I actually use that I've used for years that I recommend and everything from preparedness to using in your kitchen to entertaining reading and everything in between. Uh, I do a review a day and I try to give away good information in addition to, hey, get this stuff. Always try to provide some level of thinking. Today's lesson in thinking in the review is always be frugal, never be cheap. And I've been teaching that since the very first year of the Survival Podcast. Let's use another example of always be frugal, never be cheap. Garden hose. It's the one I always use. You can buy a cheap 100-foot garden hose, and it will kink, and it will it'll crack, and it will break, and it will fall apart, and it will get holes in it, and you will cuss it, and it will twist, and it will not. Or you can bite the bullet and spend you know, a lot more money for a heavy-duty garden hose, and as long as you take care of it, it will last for 10 years or more and do a great job and not make you miserable. And, and the, the cheap one with replacements and repairs and failing when you need it most and then lost time with it kinking up and stuff like that, um, that one is going to cost you more money long-term. So my lesson of the day and how to think, always be frugal, never be cheap. Also consider supporting the, the uh, entire community uh, by being part of the Survival Podcast uh, business directory. Did you know you can have your business listed for as little as five bucks for six months? You can. Just go to tspbiz.com. And uh, if you're thinking of doing business for any reason, in any way, buying something, just check out all the great people at tspbiz.com that are right out of this community. Many of these businesses were created because of being inspired by the work we do here on the podcast, tspbiz.com. Our supporting member today, though, is, is well, kind of, I started. The Regenerative Agriculture Facebook group is a proud supporter of the TSP Business Directory and a great place to discuss methods and techniques for like-minded producers. 
Uh, please consider joining our community and contributing to our knowledge base there. And you can find the Regenerative Agriculture Group on Facebook by just going to regen.ag. Regen.ag will take you right to our Facebook group. And it is like 15,000 people strong now. It is probably one of the best groups on Facebook for discussing stuff uh, relating to permaculture and regenerative agriculture. With that, let's talk about our ending song of the day. This is by Jimmy Buffett. And it's called Summer School. Yeah, Summer School, but it's like Summer's Cool. With a Z and then cool is one word. Jimmy changes stuff. That's what artists do. Um, this is a great song. But I ne as much as I love Jimmy Buffett, I'm more of the old school Buffett guy. Uh, I know songs by Buffett that are 30 years old that a lot of people think they know Buffett have never even heard. This is kind of a newer one. And he was on the Today Show singing this. And I immediately, I, I like, uh, Jimmy's on him, and the lady says, are you going to take us to summer school? He's, yeah. And he starts playing, and I hear the opening lines, and I'm like, oh, oh rewind, I got to hear this, right? The first two lines of this song are, you messed up and read the paper. You accidentally watched the news. And I was, I was immediately hooked. I'm like, here's a new great Jimmy Buffett song. You, you inter inadvertently find yourself in the vicinity of, of the blues bust your ass to get the good life you make a habit out of overtime when the big report card comes your priorities are way out of line you need to go to summer school get to the beach or at least in the pool time to go to summer school remind remember what is and is not cool um and there's this stanza here that he changed today Did I love the way he changed this on the Today Show playing in New York City? The original one is, what's up with this recession? I refuse to participate. To the answer to your burning question is dancing on your tailgate. Okay. What did we just have? We just had these two great big conventions with all the promises that will not be kept by both sides, all the propaganda both sides, and... What does he change this to? What is up with this election? I refuse to stay up late. The answer to your burning question is dancing on your tailgate. And you gotta think. You gotta think that mainstream media thinks, oh, we'll have Jimmy Buffett, and we just tell him he can't play that song about getting drunk and screwing, right? And it'll all be cool, and it'll be great. And he works this in taking a shot at both sides. And I bet you most of the executives and all it went right overhead. And here's the great news for you. While it was a live recording, and it's not quite the audio quality and the fine-tuning that you would get from studio music if I played that, when I went to look this song up online, even though this just happened this morning, the addition from uh, today's show was already on YouTube. So you're going to get to hear it with the altered stanza today. What's up with this election? I refuse to stay up late. Anyway, that'll be coming to you right now. And just my bigger takeaway from this, you know, this is get to the beach or at least to the pool. There's a lot of serious stuff we talk about. There is. And there's a lot of serious stuff to be concerned about. But the reason that we prepare isn't so we can sit around worrying all the time. 
It's so that we can build a resilient lifestyle so that once we have that resiliency built up, we can, we can freaking relax once in a while, dance on a tailgate, jump in the pool, do something like that. Now, here's what's going on right now. Right now, this very moment, my son, my grandson, my daughter-in-law, my little baby granddaughter, my niece, my nephew, my sister-in-law, and my wife are all sitting around or in my pool right now, and I'm in here like some working stiff earning a living. So as soon as I wrap things up today get this show finished in production, get it uploaded online and distributed to you guys so you can hear it as you relax this weekend or drive home or wherever it is you do it, I'm going to go take my ass out, I'm going to get in that pool, and I'm going to let go of some of the stuff that I worry about. And as you might imagine, by researching this stuff every day, I tend to worry about it a little bit more than maybe I should or you should or anybody should. And even I am willing to put it away, put it on the shelf, and enjoy my life from time to time. I really recommend that you take that advice and enjoy summer school. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 